Well, good morning. For those of you who do not recognize me without a baby strap to me, don't worry, she's in the nursery. She's just okay. My name is Faith Sherholt, and I'm the Director of Student Ministries here at WPC. And before we dive into today's sermon, will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to your word now, seeking your wisdom above all else. May our hearts grow quiet as we listen for your gentle whispers of love and guidance. I ask, Lord, that you use my words in whatever way you see fit. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. As most of you know, we're going through the epistle of James, the half-brother of Jesus, as Portia reminded us. He wrote this letter to the church out of much love and concern, warning them that their belief in Jesus Christ was not merely an intellectual ascent. It wasn't just a switch from Judaism to Christianity. It was more than that. Faith in Jesus, he implores, must be active. It must be active. There's another letter, though, I wish to read to you all. It is fictional. Its subject matter, though, could be seen as real. The letter begins, as the others ones that follow, as, My dear Wormwood, and they close with, Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. The book I am speaking about is the Screwtape Letters. How many of you have read this book? Oh, gave me chilly willies. I read it just this week with uh, Klaus, and it was wonderful. This is written by the well-known and beloved author, uh, C.S. Lewis. And this is a fictional narrative focused on a one-sided conversation between an uncle and his nephew. The catch? They're demons. They're not real people. They are demons. Wormwood is a young demon, and he is being taught by Screwtape, his uncle, how to tempt a young man away from his new faith in Jesus. All the letters are from Screwtape's point of view the master demon, if you will, as he tries to guide his very naive nephew on the ways of tempting this young man away from his faith in Christ, moving him away from Christ and towards their father below. I think we all can get who that is. Whatever happens, whatever Wormwood does, he must be sure to keep his patient away from actually living out his, Christ, his faith in Christ. He must not allow him to live his faith out. There's a section that really caught my attention this past week, and I'm going to read it aloud, and I don't expect you to have the screw tape letters on you, so don't worry, just listen. And it reads, The obedience the enemy demands, the enemy being Christ, the enemy demands of men is quite different in one thing. One must face the fact that all the talk he has for love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, is mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with all these lonesome little replicas of himself. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who finally can become sons. This letter's fictional. It's not real. It's just imaginary. The characters are made up. The plot is all but true. But there is nuggets of truth. And there's a nugget of truth here in this section. That faith in the holy God who created men and women alike 
We're not made for his entertainment, but made out of sheer love. And this holy God desires for all of humanity to serve, not as cattle, not as slaves, but as sons and daughters. Faith-filled obedience does not chain the believer, but rather it frees the believer to become the son and daughter they were always meant to be. So we continue in the book of James in the chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. If you have your own Bible, I encourage you to open up James chapter 2, verse 14. If you have the Bible app, or it will be on the screen, just follow along with me. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing of their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, I have faith and I have deeds, or you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not your father Abraham considered righteous for what he did as he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his action were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, And it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So one thing you may notice off the bat is that the word faith is repeated over and over again. And I'm not talking about myself. I know that joke will come later. The word faith or pistis, uh, I actually had a Greek professor in college call me that, all four years of college. Um, It appears 16 times in the whole book of James, 16 times, and almost half of them are just in this section alone. So faith is super important. And I'm important too, in my own way. James believes and knows faith is everything. But it's not meant to be passive. Faith doesn't stand idly by and give warm wishes or blessings, but ignore the, the needs of the other. His first argument, because it's built upon a three-argument stance, if you will, This first argument gives the example of those who bless their needy neighbor but never fulfills the needs that their neighbor has, no matter how small they are. What caught my attention about this first example is that all of these blessings, these prayers, they do demonstrate faith. They demonstrate a faith that a holy God will care for this person, that will care for his creation, but it doesn't go any further than that. James phrases this argument in such a way that when his first listeners heard it, they would answer his question, what good is it, with a resounding, no good at all. 
This kind of faith does no good. It's no benefit. It's lifeless, so to speak. This faith produces no hope, no perseverance, and no joy, which is also important to James. Holy motives. Holy motives must be partnered with holy action. Trust in Christ Jesus must be demonstrated in deed and not just in word. Yes, we demonstrate faith by what we say, I believe, and we follow. But how much more is it when we say, I believe, and our actions follow? This message from James may differ from what we understand Paul, the apostle, be teaching about faith. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's very clear that it's the righteous who live by faith and the works of the law are no longer needed. It's like chapter 3 or something. These two letters seem at odds. It seems like Paul and James are arguing with each other. And I know I saw it like that a while ago. But after diving a little deeper, if we know who the letters are addressed to, if we know who Paul is speaking to and we know who James is speaking to, we understand where each man is coming from. And they're actually not arguing at all. See, for Paul, his mission field was to bring the gospel to Gentiles, those who were not Jewish, those who were very much outside of the Jewish community, those who were prostitutes, those who were not of Jewish lineage. I mean, you name it, anybody who wasn't Jewish, that's who he was talking to. These were the unclean people considered by the law. They didn't know what the law was, and therefore they couldn't fulfill it. However, because of Christ's redeeming work on the cross and his resurrection from, uh, from death and his victory over death, all the Gentiles were now welcome into the family of God. This is groundbreaking stuff, especially for Paul. So that's Paul's audience. He's explaining to them, you don't need to fulfill the law in order to become a Christian, but rather because of Christ's work, you can become a Christian. James, on the other hand, who we're mostly focusing on, James, on the other hand, is speaking to Jewish Christians. These are people who grew up in the Jewish community. They know the Torah. They went to synagogue. They lived according to what God had called them to be. Their faith was demonstrated by how they lived wherever they were. And James is a Jewish Christian as well. He grew up going to synagogue. He went to synagogue with Jesus. He would know these things. He knows his audience, he knows the law, and he knows Jesus. That's why we read Deuteronomy 6, which Klaus beautifully read. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema, and it was recited daily, daily by Jewish Christians and by their families throughout centuries, from its first saying from Moses all the way through. It's even said today. And it follows with, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because it is. Jesus quotes it himself. And what's interesting is that even the Shema begins with this faith statement, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then is paired with faith-filled actions. Love your neighbor and love your God. This is where the tables turn in James's letter. He's already renouncing or saying, hey, you know this. You know this faith statement. You know what the law demands. 
But it's not only the Jewish Christians who know these things. It's not what it's not just them that know what the Shema says. The demons do too. The whole spiritual world, all of heaven and all of hell, believes that God is one. And the demons, according to James, shudder, shake, and shiver. Even our fictional character, Screwtape, knows that the love of God and knows that, the, that faith must be put into action or else it's not real. It's nothing. It's lifeless. This second example of the demons knowing this shook me to my core. And I started asking myself these questions. If I say I trust Jesus, but I don't live as though I can trust him with even one of my hairs... And the demons produce more active faith than I do. If I can't trust Jesus with even one of my hairs, then the demons produce more active faith than I do. If I don't even shudder in the reverence of God's oneness, is my faith even alive? If I don't live in the light and the life that I have received from Christ, if I don't live in that, how am I really living then? The message of James is clear. A faith in a holy God must be partnered with holy action. Motives are not enough. They're not the end. Don't be foolish or senseless, James writes. It's the foolish person who doesn't live out their faith. Faith in God is a great beginning, but the wise person, the wise person lives out their faith in obedience. James recalls Abraham, a great patriarch of the Jewish faith, and Rahab as examples of such wisdom. And James's audience would have been familiar with both of them. Abraham, of course, being the great patriarch that he was, demonstrated a faith stronger than a love that he had for his own son, willing to leave his place and go wherever God called him, and then willing to sacrifice his own son, which ended up did not happen, but we don't have to go there. And Abraham's faith in God deemed him righteous, and his obedience that followed made him a friend of God. Rahab is the interesting one that caught my attention as well. Rahab is a Gentile. She's not part of the Jewish community. She lives in the world of Canaan. She's a worldly woman and demonstrates a faith worthy of being called righteous. Even though she demonstrates a faith in the one holy God, even while she's a Gentile. To James, the call for the church in this part, in this pericope. Here's your fancy word for the day, pericope. The call for the church is to live out their faith. And that's never changed. That's been there since the beginning. From Abraham all the way to James's audience, the call is the same. If anything, that call to live out their faith was stronger. If they were to be the church, which he knew Jesus was calling them to be, they needed to proclaim Jesus' life, death, and resurrection through love, kindness, forgiveness, and good deeds. No creed, no mission statement, no Bible verse would demonstrate the new life they had if they didn't live it out. A life of faith must be visible in their very breath, in their coming and going, in their walking, in their talking, in their waking, and even in their sleeping. Otherwise, it's no more alive than a corpse. That's when it says it's dead. The word is actually like corpse. The call is no different for the church today. 
We too are called to move beyond saying, I believe, I believe God is one. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe, I believe. That's a great statement. That's a great place to start. That's where faith starts. But a life of faith takes those statements outside of the walls and puts them into action. More questions came to my mind when I thought about putting my faith into action. I started asking, if I believe that God provides... How do I partner with God in my community? If I believe that God provides for these people, how am I partnering with God in that way? If I believe that God comforts people, how are my words encouraging to those who are feeling heartbroken? If I believe that God brings comfort, how am I being a comfort? If I believe that God creates good and only good, how have I viewed others that bear his image? If God is the source of all goodness, how do, I bear, how do I view other people that bear his image? If I believe that there is life abundance through Christ, how am I sharing that life abundantly with others? This is not to say that we need to do enormously wonderful, great things in order to have faith. And it doesn't mean that we are strictly held to some law that, oh, if you don't do these good things, then you don't have faith. No, 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 no. Quite opposite, quite opposite. Rather, because we have faith, even as small as a mustard seed, or 5-2 if you're me, we move with the Spirit wherever the the Spirit is calling us, and we move in obedience, even if it just means saying hi to that person who's in the pew. That could be an act of faith. Because we have faith, we respond to God's call as sons and daughters, not as cattle. It's not this begrudging, oh, I guess I have to go. No, it's this wanting of God's calling me to put this faith into action. Holy actions that come out of this kind of faith, no matter how small it is, is scary. It's scary because it's not lifeless as screw tape and wormwood wish it to be. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And we thank you for the challenge that you bring to us to put our faith into action. Not just saying I believe, but really saying I believe and because I do, you call us to do more. Holy Spirit, be with us as we do those works out of love and gratitude for you. We pray this in your name. Amen.